All right, let me pray with you, and then we'll get started in Matthew 13. Father, God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for all that you've gifted us in our relationships with each other, but most importantly, our relationship with you. I pray that in these next few moments that you would speak to us. I don't know what you have for every person in this room. I believe that you want to speak to every individual and you have something just for them. Um, Father, I pray that you would continue to lead us not only to follow you, but to demonstrate uh, your worthiness for worship, to demonstrate that you hold all glory and we are here to glorify you. Uh, Father, we thank you for your love and we thank you for the gift of your son that you've given to us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 13, verse 31, uh, it says this. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, we're going to break these up into two different weeks because they are both, while talking about something similar, they're all talking about the same thing. What are the parables talking about? Kingdom of God. We have to always, when we approach the parables, recognize that he's talking about the kingdom, not just trite little sayings to help in your daily life, but he's talking about what does the kingdom really look like. Now, you'll find... That in the New Testament, um, you will find that the kingdom of God is referenced in a couple of different ways, and, and both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. When you see those two places, he's really talking about the same thing, because the kingdom of God is both here now that we've seen over and over again, but it's also later. So there is still this next phase of the kingdom of God in which Jesus returns, and then we're all going to be um, caught up with him in heaven. So that is where we are now, understanding the kingdom. Now, some of our parables have been very specific in which they've tried to teach us something very specific about the kingdom. This one is as well. However, what I want to do this morning is I want to pull back a little bit. Now, I've challenged you in each of these to not just take the low-lying fruit. You know, you know what the low-lying fruit is by now, I'm sure. The low-lying fruit is that, that, those fruits at the bottom of the tree that you can just walk up and pick, but they're not always the best ones. If you go up a little higher, you go, for, go a little deeper, a little farther, then you can find something um, that's even better. And this one, I want to back up because what Jesus is talking about in the kingdom is he is really talking big picture here. He's not just talking about faith, though we're going to get to that. He's talking about how the kingdom itself is going to develop, how the kingdom itself is coming. The fact that the kingdom is here, but the kingdom is also coming later. Now, I want you to remember, as we've, we've kind of talked about it, but I want us to take another look at what is the purpose of the parables, because this is so crucial to understand for the teachings of Jesus about the kingdom. And to do that, I want us to back up, same chapter, to verse 10. Matthew thirteen ten through 17 says, that The disciples came and said to him, Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? You may be thinking the same thing. Wouldn't it be easier just to come out and say what you want to say rather than using all these illustrations that maybe your listeners then got, but we may not understand. I don't know how many of you 
have, uh, have a green thumb? I do not. In fact, I had a very cathartic experience yesterday. Um, we had a little garden and it had all kinds of herbs and mint and raspberries and stuff in it. And it was a very cathartic moment because I got my lawnmower out. I cranked it up and I went to town on it and it is gone. Now, some of you are, yes, aghast at what I have done. And you're judging me, not just silently, but some of you rather loudly in the room right now. I do not have a green thumb. And just the vision of the flat level ground with no growth on it, it was very cathartic for me. So, uh, you know, but as we look at these parables, sometimes we do have to go back and we have to understand they lived very different lives. And some of the illustrations, we have to go back and understand from their perspective, not just our own, but they're asking him, so why are you speaking in parables? Now, Jesus wasn't the first one to speak in parables, as we've mentioned before. This was a common teaching strategy, the way that the rabbis would teach. And so this is how he responds, though, to this question. It's, it's very pointed and reaches down into our hearts. It says, he answered to them in verse 11, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, many of his listeners, it has not been given. For to one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can, with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see. And your ears, for they hear, for truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now, this is a very interesting explanation that Jesus gives, and it's a little frustrating. I, I think it's frustrating. I don't know if you think it's frustrating. I, it draws several questions for me, but at the at the and, you know, end of the day, what Jesus is saying is there are some people who are going to hear and there are some people that are not. And he says specifically whose disciples it has been given to you to be able to hear and to understand. Now, for me, that leads us to this difficult question. Does Jesus's teaching on the purpose of the parables mean that if I am a true Christian, I will instinctively understand all of the parables. Has anyone else ever asked that question? When I, when I read this, and when I, I first read this, I remember thinking years ago, I, I, I'm not sure I understand all these. In fact, some of the things we've talked about in the parables, you may have come to a new understanding of these parables and said, gosh, I never really thought, I didn't know that either. Does that mean I'm not a true Christian? And when we move into understanding Scripture and trying to analyze what Jesus is really trying to say, we do have to look at the rest of Scripture. Remember, context is so important. And it's very important to note that if you have ever struggled to understand the teachings of Jesus, 
you are not alone. In fact, the disciples, many of the parables, we actually have Jesus being pulled aside because the disciples are absolutely clueless about what Jesus is talking about. And they would say, Jesus, what? Literally, what are you saying? And he would then have to explain what he is saying. So I want you to know in this kind of unspoken, difficult question, do I have to, if I, if I struggle with these, does that mean I'm not a true Christian? And the big answer is no. No. Just because you struggle with some of the teachings of Jesus does not mean that you are not a true follower, just as the disciples did not always understand what Jesus was talking about. But how we approach them, how we understand the parables, it is important. It doesn't indicate whether or not you're a Christian, but it does indicate what you think or how you understand the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Because that's what the parables are about. So as we approach these, I hope that you have a little uh, deeper understanding about what it is that Jesus is doing, what he's talking about, and also what the kingdom is. And I want you to remember, if you do struggle with some of these teachings, that Jesus had to teach the disciples about his kingdom. My question to you then is, how are you being taught? Now, I know the easier answer is, well, we're sitting here listening to you. I I know that's the easy answer. That's not really what I'm talking about. Because there are many things that we do in life that we only do because we were taught to do them. But we were taught by lots of different people, lots of different circumstances, lots of different experiences in order to be the people we are, to act in the way that we do. We are all being taught Somehow, my question to you, as the disciples were being taught by Jesus, how are you being taught? Now, I do often think if I lived in this time, it would be easier. (laughs) Do you ever think that? I mean, if I could just walk with Jesus, I, I think it would just, I mean, my faith would just be stronger. Now, the problem with that belief system is, is that we approach that 2,000 years after the events with all of our knowledge about Scripture and historical events. So we approach it saying, oh, we know Jesus was the real deal. So I know I would have believed. But the truth is that the kingdom didn't enter into the world with a lot of believers. Most people didn't believe. Even of the thousands of people that would come to hear and see Jesus after he performed some pretty incredible things like raising people from the dead, people would walk away because they just couldn't quite believe. How are you yourself being taught into things that are true and worthwhile, meaningful, and lead you to not only know Christ more, but to walk with him and to know his will for your life. How, how are you being taught? Is it through God's word? I hope. Statistically, what bears out in just about any survey done on those who profess to be Christians and then ask or answer honestly about how much time do they spend in God's word, the majority of people that attend church regularly don't spend any time in God's word. The majority of people. The majority of people also say, I wish I did spend more time in God's Word, which is a very interesting dichotomy for us to struggle with for the fact of something that we don't do, but yet we say we wish we did do. 
It speaks to the way we live our lives, the intentionality in which we function, and and how we decide what we're going to do and what we're going to focus on, what our priorities are going to be. And and we dictate the disciplines by which we're going to live our lives. That is one thing we don't hear much about at all in culture today, is that you must live your life through disciplines. Now, we think about that when we're young. We want to get to the place of discipline where your child uses the bathroom by themselves. Amen? That is a glorious moment in all of parenthood. It is one of the most glorious moments in all of parenthood because then you don't have to buy diapers and then they, you, they can go do it by themselves. That is a wonderful, glorious moment. Yeah. Can I get a witness, right? As we get older, we stop thinking about disciplines. We start thinking about just going with the motion, going through the survival, going through, this is my schedule. I've just got to keep my schedule and I want to enjoy life. We sometimes think about disciplines like, well, I probably need to lose some weight, which means I probably need to eat better, go to the gym, probably need to get some more sleep, means I need to go to bed earlier. I I probably could start my day with God's word if I would get up earlier, but in order to to get up earlier, I still have to go to bed earlier. So I'm going to have to push all my schedule around. We don't often think about our lives in the form of disciplines, but God's word is one of those disciplines that most Christians don't exercise. And yet you are a learning being. You are always learning. How many of you have been to McDonald's recently? And Okay. How many of you have been there and used the self-serve kiosk? Okay, we have, we have. We are learning beings. Now that's not the most valuable life lesson, I'll tell you right now. We are learning beings. How many of you enjoy watching documentaries, whether on Netflix or HBO or somewhere else? How many of you are documentary watchers? Lots of you. Why? Because you are learning beings. How many of you, when you watch the news and you are faced with something that challenges your understanding of reality, then adjust that? Like maybe none of you eat hot dogs anymore. After you see the pink goo that goes into making a hot dog, right? Because, sorry about that, we had hot dogs at my house last night. And I literally told Deidre last night, hey, we need to get off the hot dog wagon. It is time for us to take a break from some hot dogs. We've had so many hot dogs lately. So you watch that and you're faced with this change in reality that, oh, maybe this isn't what I thought it was. Which I don't really know what I thought hot dogs were before that. But we change our behavior because we are... Learning beings. So how are you being taught? So Jesus was teaching. He's constantly teaching, giving us lessons. And either we're taking it in and we are adjusting as a result, or we are not. Now that doesn't mean that if we're not adjusting to the teachings of Jesus that we're not interested at all, we may just not even realize what he's trying to teach us. And one of the reasons is because of the disciplines we keep. God's word, are you being taught by God's word? Another one might be mentors. Who are the mentors in your life? If I were to ask you to stand up and say, okay, tell us who your mentors are in your life. Most of you in the room, I'm guessing, would stand up and be like, I I don't have any. And yet you do. 
There are people within your life that you hold in higher esteem than others. That when they say something, you listen. When they post a blog, you read it. When they're the journalist pushing the story, you believe it. There are people that you trust and you give them more access into who you are and to who you're going to be. You believe them, you follow them. Maybe it's not in the realm of how you're doing your everyday life. We all have our favorite theologian or pastor or speaker and whenever they speak they just resonate with us and then we just listen we kind of open up and just say what whatever they say is true i'm going to believe it's true those are your mentors who are the mentors within your life what are the areas of prominence in your life that you give access to others and who are they who are those friends that whenever you get together they just have access to your deeper inner soul than most people do Because those are the people that are influencing you. And yes, you're influencing them, but you will not have a relationship where you are just influencing them and they have no influence on you. Who are your friends that you spend the most time with? Those are a type of, maybe not mentor, but they are definitely influential people that are in your life. So just as the Disciples had to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we don't understand. Why are you teaching in parables? What did you mean by this parable? Jesus knew, and what we know as we learn from this, is that if we're going to learn anything of importance within our life, we've got to be intentional. Now, I can learn a lot of stuff. I have a lot of worthless information in my head. It didn't feel worthless when I stuck it there and filed it away. And it comes out at some of the weirdest times. But I have some of the most worthless information in my head. See, we, we're learning beings. However, to learn something of importance and of true value takes intentionality. You have to be intentional about learning things that are meaningful and truly life-changing. We have to be intentional about the way that we learn. Who are we giving prominence in our lives? Are we reflective? Are we introspective? Do you know what that means? Some of you do. Some of you who are quiet and you could spend an entire year with no one around, you tend to be more reflective and introspective. You tend to think about what's going on in my heart. How am I feeling? What am I thinking about something? Those of you who, if you're alone, you're going to go nuts in about 30 seconds flat. You tend to not be all that reflective or introspective because you're outwardly focused thinking about all these other things that are going on rather than thinking about what's going on within you. Are you reflective and introspective? Repentance takes reflection repentance takes some introspection in which we look inside we inspect ourselves one of the disciplines we have to learn is to be quiet and to be still and to listen not just to what god is saying but we have to listen to our own hearts what are our hearts saying and i don't mean that our hearts have all the answers sometimes my heart tells me things that are not true And I have to ferret that stuff out. I have to listen for it. I have to understand what is really motivating me. Whenever we're going to be intentionally learning something important, are we able to come to the place of saying, we were wrong? (laughs) I try to say that word as little as possible myself i don't know about you i try not to say it too much 
But we have to come to the place to admit sometimes we're wrong. You'll never learn something that alters your life if you're already right about everything, right? It takes introspection. It takes being willing to say that we were wrong. It takes practicing disciplines that help us to grow. Let me ask you this, if you just want an indication of where you are. Do you, as a, just as a span, not like every day you can quantify this, but just as you look at your life, are you growing more aware of God within your life? Are you growing more aware of the presence of Christ within you? Are you growing more aware of what the Holy Spirit is whispering into your soul? Or do you feel like I've been stuck for a very long time? I'm kind of where I am. I've always been here. I've not really gone anywhere else. That is not what Jesus said it would be like when we followed him. In fact, what he said is, I am sending a helper and he is going to open up the kingdom to you. He's going to open up my word to you. He's going to speak to you. He's going to intercede for you in prayer at times that you're not able to do that yourself. Can you look at the span of your life, maybe recently in the last few weeks, months, years, and say, yes, I am experiencing God more intimately than I was? Whatever that looks like for you. Because a lot of times our answer is, I don't know. I'm not sure. Similarly, are we becoming more aware of others? The needs of others. What does it look like to love others, to show others compassion, to tell others, I am here for you? Are we still focused on the things going on in our own lives? It doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It just means that you're not spending time developing in this area of learning about what's going on in the lives of others. And some of us are better at that than others. Some of us just honestly, that you, you fall into that. And the reality and, and the reason I share this with you and I wanted to go in this direction about the importance of learning and developing, being taught and growing is because the parable of the mustard seed is about growth. It's about growth. Now, you may be saying, well, it's all about talking about the, my growth. Well, there, there is teachings of Jesus that we're going to talk about in just a second about your growth compared to a mustard seed. That is not what this parable is talking about. It is not talking about your individual growth. When Jesus is talking about this, this is that 30,000 feet standing back, looking at the kingdom. Here is this kingdom. No one really knows what it is. There's a lot of confusion about it. And he is literally trying to teach them what does it look like for the kingdom of God to come. And the reason that this is so crucial is because there was a lot of misunderstanding of what the kingdom was then. I believe there's a lot of misunderstanding of what the kingdom is now. As we look back, Matthew 13, 31 and 2, another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air nest in its branches. When Jesus came, you need to understand that everyone wanted, expected, they expected this coming Messiah that had been prophesied for years to come and to conquer the world, especially their Roman oppressors. This is what was expected of the Messiah. This is what was expected of the kingdom. 
Now, depending on your persuasion of what's going on in the world or your awareness of what's going on in the world, think about who you consider the most evil oppressors in the world and then what would you love for God to do about it? Oh, I just got, wish God would give them a big hug. That is not what you thought. I wish God would just pour his grace down upon those oppressors and they could experience his mercy. Again, not what you thought. That's not what they thought. For them, it was the picture of the mushroom cloud, right? God comes down. The kingdom is ushered in. There's this big explosion and the vaporization of every Roman oppressor in the world and anyone else that would stand against them. In fact, their understanding came from their history of a nation because Jesus was coming from the line of David, their greatest liberator. I mean, the stories of David are all about liberation. We're introduced to David whenever he stands up against Goliath. And he takes a stone and and his sling and he throws it and kills Goliath and delivers his people from their oppressors. This is what people wanted from Jesus. This is what people still want from Jesus today. Whenever Jesus came in in the days before he was crucified, he came in, what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, he sent his disciples out, go find this donkey that's never been ridden, bring it in, I'm going to ride it into the city. And as he rode into the city, he got a king's welcome as people laid down their palm leaves because the Messiah had come into the capital city, Jerusalem. And so as they laid their palm leaves down, they could just whisper and say, conqueror is here he has come to fight for us our liberation is at hand and literally within a few hours those same people called for him to be crucified because he made it clear i'm not here to bring about the revolution that you want i'm here to bring about a revolution that you can't even see Have you ever wondered why all those people loved him and then hated him like that? Now, we could do some studies and find that some of those people that put the palm leaves down were actually from other places, but those within Jerusalem were so ingrained. But but this really is the crux of what it was and why Barabbas was released instead of Jesus, because Barabbas was a known revolutionary. Well, if Jesus isn't the real deal, we at least know Barabbas is fighting for us. Give us Barabbas. And crucify Jesus, because Jesus was saying, my kingdom is not of this world, which no one who is oppressed wants to hear, because what an oppressed person wants to hear is, I am liberating you from your oppressors in this very moment. And so Jesus, as he's describing this, is talking to the Pharisees in Luke seventeen twenty, and the Pharisees ask this very question. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, if you're still under your Roman oppressors, to hear someone say they're supposed to be your liberator, the kingdom of God, it's happened. It's here. It's right now. And you look around and you still see the guards walking through the city collecting the taxes. 
The kingdom's here? This is it? This is the kingdom? And so Jesus had to teach, and this parable of the mustard seed is this very teaching to describe what to expect out of the kingdom as it is going to exist in the world. It's not going to be this cataclysmic conquering warrior that walks in and just snaps his fingers and all of their enemies are gone. But instead, it's like a mustard seed. Smallest of all seeds. And it's going to be planted. Now, if we look at this kind of section of teaching that Jesus does, what we literally find is a number of parables in the same vein of growing, sowing, this this agricultural parable in which he is trying to describe this whole concept of the kingdom of God. And we find first the parable of the sower. The kingdom is going to be sown and there's just going to liberally be sown out. And some of it is going to throw on, fall on the rocky path and and nothing's going to happen with it. And some of it's going to fall in the thorns and it's going to grow up, but the cares of the world is just going to choke it out. And the, the concerns of life are just going to kill it within them. Some of it is going to fall in good soil, and it's going to grow. And then he follows up the parable of the sower with our very enjoyable parable of the tares. That was fun, wasn't it? Because what they wanted was, for as he sowed his believers into the world, they would eradicate all those who opposed them. So they should pull up the tares and the weeds. And Jesus said, no, don't pull those up. Let them grow together and then at the end i will figure it out i will separate the wheat and the tares he even says though and this is a little disconcerting for some of us who our theology isn't quite biblical in which the sower says even the seed that falls into the good soil and it grows it's it's not going to be the same effectiveness or efficiency in spreading the kingdom as each other because even the sow that falls we know that it is the true seed that it is the true growing within the kingdom because they understand and because of the fruits of their life and but their fruits are going to be different some are going to produce fruit a hundredfold some are going to produce fruit 60fold and some are going to produce fruit 30fold now i will tell you as a pastor there's not a pastor out there that says you know what i think i'm a 30fold kind of guy none of us say that we believe it we don't say it i'm a hundredfold kind of guy Because that's the world, that's the competitive world in which we live. I need to be the best. And we look at that and we think, well, what kind of kingdom is the God of creation who spoke all of this into existence? What kind of God is he that even those who get it, some of them are only returning a third of the fruit of others? That's not a very effective gospel. It's not very effective, not very efficient. Jesus said, this is not the point. The point is not that this is going to be a tidal wave that takes over the world. The point is that this is going to be the tiniest of all seeds, but it is going to grow. Are we in for that kind of kingdom? 
What he's literally saying from all these things is that the kingdom would start small. First, with Jesus and his disciples. It would start small. But the kingdom would grow beyond anyone's imagination. So that those who would scavenge the seed would now nest in its branches because it grew so incredibly strong. This gives us a glimpse about how God works. As with all the parables or a lot of launching off points, you may just feel Holy Spirit speaking to you and your mind may wander in a direction. If that's the case, feel free. Just make sure that that wandering is a Holy Spirit and not lunch or what you're going to do this afternoon. But that which is tiny is world-changing with God. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Because some of you have come up in a culture that says bigger is better, smaller is worse. I need a bigger everything. I need a bigger house. I need a bigger car. I need a bigger title. I need a better job. I need a bigger paycheck. I don't want my trophy to be bigger. I remember when I was a kid, and I don't know, we all did we all did karate back then. I don't know if everybody does that anymore, but we all did karate and we would just, I think it was so our parents could take us somewhere and pay somebody to let us beat each other up. I'm not sure. <laughs> but we would then go on these tournaments. And I remember the time I kind of made the elite fighting force. You know, Chuck Norris was big and, you know, all those Rambo. I was like, I'm Rambo, you know, I'm sixth grader, but I'm Rambo and I've got my fancy, you know, I remember going to a tournament, and I got absolutely demolished. But I made it far enough to get a trophy, and my trophy was taller than me. And I thought, I am awesome. (laughs) Have you seen my trophy? I still have it at the house, I think. Mom and Dad's, have you seen my trophy? Would you like to see my trophy? You know, we all have different trophies. When I first became a pastor, I had the me wall. Some of you may have a me wall at work. You know what the me wall is? All my degrees, ordination certificate, framed real nice, nice matte color coordinating to demonstrate God's thread of work through the Holy Spirit in my life and all of my degrees so that you could come in. If you had a problem with your life, look at my wall. I can fix it. See, all these pieces of paper say so. And I started running into things I had no idea how to deal with, and my me wall disappeared because I was like, no, I don't, have, I don't know, I don't know, you know? And it's like, take those down. You know, people don't come in and say, look at my me wall. They come in and say, do they really let you do this? I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't you have some kind of qualification for this? We all have our trophies. We have our trophies on Facebook. We have our trophies on Instagram. We have our trophies at work. I made employee of the month six years ago, but still, I still got it. (laughs) And here it is. See, I remember when I was on the wall, we all have our trophies, those things that which make us feel better, feel good, feel like we've got everything together, make us feel bigger, better, badder than everybody else. But Jesus says the kingdom of God, it starts small. Most people won't even see it. 
In fact, many of the parables say even those who say they see it, a good number of those, they don't actually see it, which is a little discouraging when you spend your life trying to help people get the kingdom of God, because you may have a whole bunch of people in the room saying, I got it, but the parables say a good number of you don't. The parable of the net, the parable of the wheat and the tares. They're talking about believers, people who call themselves believers, that at the end of the day, Jesus is going to have to sort us out. And sometimes I'm like, Jesus, I'm pretty sure I'm a terror. I don't really want to be a terror, but today I feel like a terror. And so he looks at this kingdom and he's trying to describe to these Pharisees that which is tiny is world changing with god i want i was gonna talk about this next week but i can't i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about it or in two weeks but i don't i came across uh, I, I like numbers numbers are indicators they're they're nothing more than that they're indicators some are more trustworthy than others depending on who put the numbers together in 1920 there were 2.3 million christians in china In 2011, 90 years later, there are over 100 million Christians in China. Let me put that in perspective. We have roughly 300 million people in the United States of America. A third of our entire population profess to be a Christian in a country where you can be killed for being a Christian. Over 90 years, 2.3 million to 100 million, a tiny little seed that should be stomped out, grows. It grows. You see, even the tiniest thing with God changes the world. It's amazing what God wants to do with the kingdom and the way that it works. The second thing that may be really where you are, and you kind of, you're okay with the whole kingdom thing and talking about what's going on in the world, but you're still kind of focused on what's going on in you. And we can easily take what God is saying about the kingdom, recognize we have a part, a place in the kingdom. That which is tiny is still life-changing for us with God. Does anybody ever feel tiny? I don't normally when I walk in the room. I walk in the room with someone bigger than me, and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to stand near you. Because most of my life, I've been bigger than everyone around me, you know, and you get, not as much anymore, but you know, how's the weather up there? I don't really want to answer that question anymore, you know, it's, (laughs) yeah, that's kind of my response, right? Do you ever give give those responses or do you ever get those responses? Like, (laughs) okay, I'm going over here. But there are times I feel really tiny inside, (laughs) There are times that I know I'm not supposed to worry, but I worry. There are times you're not supposed to worry, but you worry. There are times I have anxiety. I'm not supposed to have anxiety. There are times you have anxiety. You're not supposed to have anxiety. And I think, God, I feel so small inside. And what God is trying to say to us over and over again is, I don't care what's there because I am with you. And whatever is tiny can still be life-changing with me. 
And some of you need to hear that wherever you feel your faith is, that, you know, I just am not there. God's not done anything great for me. If I were to write down all the things I've done for the kingdom, it would literally fit on a postcard, and I wrote really, really, really big, right? But God says, but you know what? No matter what you have with me, it is world-changing. No matter what you have with me, your life is changed because God is not dependent on what we bring to the table. We are dependent on what God brings to us. And this is what he's saying about the kingdom. And this is hard. And this is, you know, we talk a lot about what does faith in this country look like. This is hard in this country because the very foundation of this country says, We are blessed by God and we are pursuing happiness. And yet we don't see that in Scripture. We see that in our nation's founding documents, which I am glad to live in a nation where I get to pursue happiness. But that is not the same thing as pursuing God. And he's saying, even with the smallest thing that you have, is life-changing with God. Jesus similarly uses the exact same type of description to talk about you and your life outside of just the bigger overall kingdom. In Matthew 17, this is an interesting story in which Jesus is healing a boy with a demon and the disciples who Jesus has said, I have given you all, everything I can do, you can do. And, and they can't exercise this demon out of this boy. And so this is the exchange that happens says, when they, the disciples, came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation. Interesting response, by the way, if you go and actually dig into this. (laughs) Who's he actually talking to here? Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately, of course, because you don't say this in front of other people, and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. Now, this is the point that in leadership dynamics, you look at the leader and say, well, you picked them, right? Like you're in charge of your work group at work, and your work group fails miserably, and they come to you to ask why. It's these people, right? Does that, that never goes well, by the way. Don't ever, if you're a leader, don't ever blame everybody else. But he says, because of your little faith, I always feel in good company when I read these things. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to the mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And this probably tops my list of the number of scriptures that I absolutely hate. Let me tell you about my week had a great week. Emma's birthday was this week. She's 16. Everybody say happy birthday. I would love for each of you to individually sing happy birthday to her at the end of the service. She would love it and she would love me for asking you to do that. Um, 
So we, over Christmas, we got each of our kids hammocks because we, we like to go outside and be lazy. But we have one good tree. It's hard to enjoy a hammock with one good tree, isn't it? It's really hard. And so this week, I decided to do something I haven't done in a very long time, and that was to, to put a couple of posts in the ground. And it's been, it's been a day or several thousand since I've done that. And so I went out to sink two posts into the ground and dig these holes in the ground with my post hole diggers, which I had. I don't know why. I felt good that I got to use them. I had them. And I went commenced to digging. It didn't take very long. I mean, it took me, I don't know, maybe an hour each. Big holes, big six-by-six six posts. And there were a couple of thoughts that occurred to me as I'm digging these holes. My shoulders are getting very sore. My hands, you know, you know how your hands just start shaking? And you're like, that's not good. You know, that's happening. <laughs> you know, everything is hurting because I, I'm old and I've abused my body over the years. And, and I'm digging and I think, you know, my father-in-law has a tractor with an auger on the back. And he could literally come over here and drop that thing down in the ground and pull it back up. And I would have a hole. But he's an hour away. Then I thought, well, you know, I could probably go rent one of those things. You know, you see those two guys and they've got the, the you know, big, I don't know what you call it, and they're holding it. But, of course, the only thing going on in my mind are all the fail videos where one guy's doing it and it catches a rock and then he's just going around in a circle. That's, that's what would happen. But I'm daydreaming about this. And you know what? The truth about the scripture is what Jesus just said was, if I just had a little bit of faith the size of a mustard seed, I could have just gone, get out of there. And I would have had two holes right there. And I wouldn't have had to done anything. I wouldn't be sore and unable to move the next day. If I just had faith the size of a mustard seed. And the problem is, when we look at this scripture and we misunderstand what Jesus is saying, that's how we read it. The thought that I could move a mountain with my faith just makes me give up even imagining what that would look like. Let me ask you this, those of you who are biblical scholars in the room, how many mountains did Jesus himself move? Okay, figuratively, socially, Yes, he moved mountains. But I mean like a mountain was here and Jesus said move and the mountain went somewhere else. Anybody? What about the disciples? Those, you know, best of the, of the best that he could pick. How many mountains did they move? Anybody? Biblical scholars? None. And that's why I hate this scripture. Because I'm like, well, I haven't moved any either. But I feel like if I had faith the size of a mustard seed, I could. But see, that was not what Jesus was saying. Now, if you're familiar at all with the topography of this area of the world, you know that a mountain there is not what we consider a mountain. A mountain there is like a hill. And literally, Jesus, when he taught in parables often would talk about the things that they were looking at. And they were literally looking at a mountain right now in this moment. This comes at a very crucial point in the ministry of Jesus in which Jesus is trying to make a point to them that we read about just a little earlier, chapter 17, verse 1, called the transfiguration of Jesus. And it says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. 
and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, which is as relevant to us today as it was to them then. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. They literally walk away from this experience, one of the defining moments where they're like, I mean, he's the real deal. And Jesus, as they walk away from the mountain, begins to engage with this group of people. And this crowd comes around him. And this man comes up with his child, possessed by demons. Your disciples could do nothing. Can you help me? Then the disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, why couldn't we do it? And he said, if you just had faith the size of a mustard seed, this mountain that we were just on, that you saw me transfigured before you and heard the voice of God and saw Moses and Elisha there with me, you could speak and that whole mountain would move. And us, in the way that we typically view and approach life, we look at the concept of moving a mountain rather than the concept of what does faith the size of a mustard seed do? And we ask ourselves, I can never have that kind of faith where I moved a mountain. I mean, I would love to, because I could really enjoy that ability in life. Move that car out of my way. If I can move a mountain, I could sure move that car. I could sure move those red lights in Dayton Boulevard and Ashland Terrace that they've put up and shut down for the next six weeks. I could move that real quick, right? The point is not that we move the mountain. The point is what God can do with just a little bit of faith. Now that brings hope to me for a number of reasons. Because one, God doesn't expect me to come to a level of professional faith in order for him to do anything. We just got to believe just the smallest amount. And he is ready to change the world. Because this is how God works. You may be sitting at home thinking... All the things I hoped my life would be, it's not. All the places I thought I would go, I haven't. All the things I wanted to believe about myself, I don't think are true. Jesus is saying, well, you know what? If you've got faith the size of a mustard seed, we can move mountains together. The power of God is not seen in great acts. The power of God is seen in the subversive growth of the faithful. See, if you're going to grow in your faith, you have to be subversive because the world is not cheering you on. And that subversive growth, people will look at you and they won't know what's going on. They will look at you and they will think there's nothing going on. They will look at you and say, that person doesn't have anything to offer. And yet God is doing something within you because the tiniest speck with God changes the world. So perhaps we need to stop saying, I don't have anything. I don't have anything to offer. 
and start believing that God wants to work within what you do have. Now, you, maybe you're going to be one of those hundredfold fruit bearers. Maybe you're going to be the 60. Maybe you're going to be the 30. What Jesus is saying is, that's not even the point. See, it's our competitive minds that run to that. That's not the point. The point is, you are with God producing kingdom fruit that is changing the world. For some of you, you... You've struggled to believe because you've been asking God for big acts and He has not provided. You've been asking Him to move mountains and the mountain's not moving and you're pretty frustrated with God now. It's hard for you to believe because you've prayed about something and God's not come through. You've asked Him to fix something that is bugging you to death and it's not fixed. You're asking Him to make you into something that you're not and He's not done it yet. You're asking him to solve the problem that's been plaguing you your entire life, and yet the problem still persists. And you think, God doesn't love me. God is not here. God does not care. And the truth is that God works subversively behind the scenes, moving influencing, taking your problems and your heartaches, taking the things that you wish were not a part of your life and they are a part of your life. And he works them around because he who has begun a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the end because he works subversively. It means we love people that people don't love. It means we stick up for people that no one sticks up for. It means that we serve when everyone else is wanting to be served. It means we're generous when everyone else is say hoard. It's subversive. It means our priorities change. They shift into something more important. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that it was planted, it was the smallest among all seeds, and yet it grew, and it grew, and it grew. Even the birds nested in its branches. Perhaps you feel like that mustard seed, and I want you to know that where you are now is not where you're going to end up. God's not done working. God's still at work. He's moving you somewhere, doing something within you. Let me leave you with these questions. What do you believe about the kingdom of God? Are you a part of it? Is it real? Is it something to orchestrate your life around? Or is it just some interesting theological concept? As you struggle with what do you believe about the kingdom of God, what is your part in it? You have a part. The kingdom is not just a place. The kingdom is a presence. It is a people. It is relationship. As Jesus describes it, it's a family. What is your part in it? And the last question I wish you would just contemplate over the next few days is, are you growing? Do you see something different? I have found that you don't have to see a huge difference. If you just see a difference, it is encouraging to continue growing. Do you see any difference?
Our last parable sermon is going to be the parable of the leaven, which is similar and yet somewhat different. So I wanted to split them up. It's going to be where we wrap up the entire series and everything in his teaching about the parables we're going to pull into this last shortest, smallest parable. And I hope that you'll be here. That's in two weeks. I hope you'll be here next week to hear Dan, who's going to be here talking about what God is doing in Ethiopia, another amazing work in the world where something as small as a mustard seed continues to grow. As we close, I want to pray with you, and I want you to know if you just need someone to pray with you, we will have some individuals in the back of the room that are ready and available. You can just walk back there, and they are more than willing. You don't have to you don't even have to say anything. You have to tell them what to pray for unless you want to. They will pray with you. I do hope you'll stick around for our, uh, our gathering after worship today and be with us. And just a reminder, I, I don't know if we announced this, if you are a guest and you're interested in learning more about our church, how to get involved, how to get connected and interested in, in meeting some of our pastors, um, after we finish today, about, oh, 10 minutes, go grab your kids. We're going to meet back in here and have something we call Meet the Pastors. Just be a very short time. We just give you a big picture of who we are as a church and what does it look like to get plugged in. If you're interested in membership, that's also an opportunity to come and hear about what does it look like to be a member at Journey. That's going to be immediately after the service today. Would you pray with me, Father? God, I thank you for the opportunity that we can celebrate you. I thank you that you have given us ways in which we can remember your sacrifice, just like communion that we've celebrated earlier. Father, I pray that our faith, even the size of a mustard seed, that you would be at work. And even with what we have, we may not feel like it's very much, but you can change the world and you can change our lives with it. I pray that you would work that within us today. Help us to be mindful of and working with you in building your kingdom. That it would be subversive and move forward in a way not expected. You would receive the glory and not us. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that while we're a part of this body, we have the opportunity to truly experience what it looks like to walk and follow you. Be with us as we leave this place. We're asking Jesus' name. Amen.